Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. This episode is called Breathe. God's got this. We hope you enjoy. Happy Fourth of July weekend. We celebrate the independence of our country from the tyrannical rule of the King of England. That's what we really were about, celebrating that and our freedom. But as Christians, you know, we have a greater freedom to celebrate, and that's our freedom from sin and death. And so um, whenever you see the fireworks, counted a celebration of new birth, you know, in Christ. So, um, thank you once again for coming. Matthew 2, 13 through 25 is where we're going to be today. We're in this, in this series on, um, on Matthew. We're seeing how Matthew is setting up this, this Messiah guy. He's starting here, and uh, we know the Old Testament constantly, there's these men raised up to be examined for, are they the seed promised in Genesis 3? And they're constantly falling, constantly falling. And so then there's that 400 years of silence, and then all of a sudden the new person comes on the scene. His name is Jesus. Uh, Matthew calls him Messiah. And uh, the question is, is he really a Messiah? So Matthew sets up this pattern of proving that he is the Messiah. Last week we talked about the Magi. They heard God say that he was the Messiah. They saw it in the sky. They heard it in the scriptures, and they were moved towards him. We, the, the catchphrase from last week is when the king speaks, we respond. We respond. Awesome. We respond in four ways. We respond where you are, wherever you are in your life. You can respond to the king. You respond by seeking uh, direction from the scriptures, right? We don't depend on what we see alone or what we um, what we feel. We respond uh, from seeking direction from the scriptures. We respond in joy, faith, and worship, as the Magi did to the king, and we respond with what we have, right? So um, the Messiah has specific qualifications. Today we're going to see a new set of qualifications in Matthew 2, 13 through 25. Um, first, we, and we've seen that he is genealogically qualified to be the Messiah. Jesus is. Um, he has the right family lineage. He comes from the line of David, that the divinic covenant was promised. We see that he comes from Abraham. We go on through, so he is blessing the whole world through the lineage of Abraham on to David and then David to Jesse. Right? Sorry, Jesse was David's dad. On to Joseph. Joseph being, according to lineage, the rightful king and ruler of Israel. Um, but he wasn't. He was a carpenter. We learned that that was kind of an odd thing. So Jesus, in his family lineage, uh, has, has, is genealogically qualified to be Messiah. He, he comes from the right lineage from all the prophecies. He is divinely qualified to be the, prop, to, to be the Messiah. Um, the stars were spun into existence in right, exactly the right pattern from the very beginning of creation to reveal the birth of Jesus. Right? That's the king, king, king sign that the wise men saw. Um, the prophecies told them where to go. Jesus came at the right time and the right point in history. He's divinely qualified. God set it up. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to really examine his baptism where, G- where God himself says, this is my son. This is Messiah. This is the one that I, the anointed one with whom I'm well pleased. And then today we're going to see that he's prophetically qualified. Right? So prophetically qualified. Uh, all through the Old Testament, there were men that God raised up and gave visions of the Messiah. And he said, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And this is what he'll be like. And so we're going to see today uh, in this text that there are three prophecies fulfilled that kind of prove what basically Matthew's saying is if, if he wasn't if it wasn't good enough for him to be genealogically qualified and the star didn't blow your mind, let me just tell you how he continually fulfills scripture, right, and fulfills prophecy. And he continues to do that through the book of Matthew. So um, this text was easy for me to skip over. Like I just kind of wanted to skip it because I was like, all right, so Joseph flees, he comes back, whatever. And I was like, this is kind of a hard text to preach. What in the world is in this thing? And but I, as I started studying it, I saw there's so much in there, right? Like, we see God communicating dreams. What's that all about? We see God speaking in dreams through angels. Not just sending angels like he did to Joseph and Mary in the first place. They are in dreams. It's weird. What's that all about? We see God call 
a family into a moment of suffering, into a moment of difficulty, instantly they obey. Radical obedience. We see radical obedience. We see prophecies fulfilled and explained. And just in this short little text about Joseph moving in and out of, of Israel. And then we see uh, all this is happening in the context of horrific pain, horrific suffering, right? That God is moving here. Um, above all, what we see is that God is sovereign, and through his providence, he's providing us a hope. God is sovereign, and through providence, is providing us a hope. That's, that's what we can see through this whole text, this, this section. And those are very Christianese words, right? The average person maybe listening online or um, maybe you're in here and you're like, oh, that's, yeah, I've heard those before. I don't have a clue what they mean, right? But sovereignty and uh, providence. So I want to explain those and define those as we go forward so we know what we're talking about. Sovereignty literally means supreme, right? Supreme above all things, God is the supreme. There is no one higher than him. He is the ruler. Because he is the ruler and because he is supreme, he is ultimately in control of all of his creation. Right? So we, all, we automatically go sovereignty means control. Well, sovereignty doesn't necessarily mean control. It's a product of being supreme. Right? He is above all things. Nothing, he answers to no one. Right? God is above all. Sovereignty doesn't necessarily equate to causation either. So when we say God is in control, it doesn't mean that he institutes everything in our life. Like We have a will. We can sin against him. Right? So God doesn't institute our sin. He doesn't make us sin. He doesn't cause that. Our flesh causes us to sin. But he's still in control and he allows it to happen. It's kind of a weird thing. But he, he can be in absolute control and allow us our will to work and, and us to sin against him and to fall into, um, and for evil to happen. That's one of the biggest, biggest uh, pushbacks to God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, then why did my mom get cancer? If God is sovereign, why did that baby be hit by a car? You know, if God is sovereign, why this and why that? Why are people? And so we got to realize that. Sovereignty just means he's ultimately in control. It doesn't mean that he dictates all things. Okay? Um, sin, Satan, demons, the flesh, those things are against God's will at all times, right? His will is not working, and that's why we have providence. We'll get to there. Remember Job, um, for example, God didn't inflict Job with disease. God didn't take away Job's family. God didn't destroy all his cattle. Who did that? Satan. But who did he have to ask permission to, to do those things? God. God was in control. He was sovereign. But Satan, in his evil heart, his wickedness, is what inflicted all those things against Job. But Job responded, saying, can I take blessing from God and not curse also? Right? I mean, he, he saw that God was sovereign. So what's providence? Providence is a little something different. Providence is how God works in our lives and in throughout history to bring about his will. Right? That's providence. So he is sovereignly in control. We have a will that's against him, but yet he works throughout history and throughout time and in people's lives to bring about his glory and his will overall. That's providence. Um, God calls us to pray for providence. You know where he calls us to pray for providence? Anybody remember? The Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wouldn't call us to pray for that if his will was being done on earth as it is in heaven all the time, right? He's asking us to pray for providence, that God would move in through the culture, would change hearts, would bring glory to himself in the way that he moves. He's asking us to pray for providence. Um, it is the way in which we justify or we, we equate or balance the equation of sovereignty and the free will of man. It's the providence of God. That's how we, we see those things working where we do have a free will and we sin against God, yet he is sovereign and in control, but he moves in and, and changes things for his glory and for his purposes. That's providence. So summarizing all this concept, the easiest way to say this, uh, sovereignty and providence, big words, the easiest way to say this is God's got this. Right? I mean, everybody say it with me. 
God's got this. He's got it. God is in control. He's got this. Breathe. Rest. Hope. Take a break. God's got this. Breathe. That's how we kind of summarize it. Um, you've, you've probably heard that phrase, I've got this before. Right? Anybody ever heard that? Like maybe you heard it from your kids when you teach them to drive. You know, it's like, yeah, I got this. Shut up. <laughs> you know, like, you've heard that before, right? I mean, um, my dad would teach me how to change the oil or do things on the car, and he'd teach me, and it would be the most, like, methodical, long, drawn-out process. And eventually, he'd be like, hey, we'll go change the oil. And then he'd stand over me, and he'd be like, hey, wait, don't, don't, don't do that. And I'm, I'd be like, no, not right there. Do this one for <laughs> I got this! You know, like, calm down. And what we're really saying when we don't say, I, when we say I got this, it means I, I've, I've got control over the situation. Calm down. So when we proclaim that God has got this, we're proclaiming he has control. But the opposite of that is wanting to take that control from him, right? Right. It's saying, I really don't trust you, God. I really don't trust you. That's why I'm going to be stressed out. That's why I'm going to fear. That's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in constant worry because I don't really trust that you are sovereign. You know, like I see all this suffering happening around me, and my eyes are telling me the truth, not your word, not, not what I've seen through history. My eyes are telling me you don't have this. So I've got this, God. That's the opposite. We need to get to a place, and what we're going to see today in Matthew is that we can honestly say, God's got this. We can breathe. So no matter our circumstances, no matter our suffering, God is saying to us, see what I've done. Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. I've got this. You have a future. You have a hope. Take a deep breath. I'm working. I got this. Um, I want you to look for those concepts as we're going through the text. Sovereignty. Providence. Hope. Look for those things as we're moving through the text together. Okay, so if you got your Bibles, Matthew 2, 13 through 15, let's read it together. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. What? Anyway. Get up! In, in the Greek, that means, hey, we got to go. That's, that's literally how it's translated. Hey, 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 get up. You know, like, there's a little bit of urgency in this. And he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay here until I tell you. Uh, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up with some urgency. He listened to the angel. He got up. He took the child and his mother during the night. Interestingly enough, he didn't wait for the morning. They didn't pack a bag. They didn't stretch it out. They didn't take their time getting to the beach. Like they, they got up and they left in the middle of the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord said through his prophets, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Okay. So uh, an angel appeared in the dream. We're going to touch dreams towards the end. Okay, I'm not going to skip over it. I know it's a question, so we're going to we're going to get into that. Why Egypt? Why would he Why would he send him to Egypt? Well, some would say because there was a prophecy that said he had got to come out of Egypt. So God sovereignly through providence moved him to Egypt so that he could call his son out of Egypt. I would agree. But it was a normal place for refugees, for Jewish refugees, right? The philosopher Philo said that there were probably about a hundred thousand Jews living in Egypt at the time of Christ's birth. Uh, because of all the invasions and the war and the exiles and everything that happened to Israel, a lot of the Jews fled back to Egypt, and they had set up this little area. Do you remember Alexander the Great? Y'all remember him? So he was before Christ. He came, and he established what city? Alexandria. And in Alexandria, he set aside a specific area for the Jews, right, for the Jewish people. So there was a refugee camp, basically, in Egypt that God was sending Jesus and Joseph and Mary to to get away from the persecution of Herod. So this is a normal thing that they would flee to Egypt. It's not like this crazy weird thing. But it shows you that God orchestrated history and brought up Alexander the Great and created a refugee camp so that when Jesus was born, that he could send his son to this refugee camp where they'd be safe 
and they can continue to worship with other Jews and, and, and be in a community while there was evil going on in their hometown so that he could pull them out of Egypt and fulfill the prophecy. Crazy cool God, right? It's a crazy cool God. Our God is huge. Um, there was a temple there. It was a common place to worship. Hosea 11.1, 1, this is the prophecy that we see fulfilled. This is the first prophecy of three in this text. Hosea 11.1, 1. when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So when you read Hosea 11.1, 1, you immediately think this is talking about Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Right? Uh, some would say this is a typological prophecy. Some would say, that, like, Israel is representing Christ in this time period. Right? So Hosea is talking about Israel, and he's pulling, he's talking about when the Exodus happened, he pulled Israel out because he loved them. He established a new covenant with them. Right? That, that's interesting. And then uh, he made them the presence of, his presence dwelt in Israel outside of Egypt. Right? His presence was with the people. And then they were the representation of God to the people of the world. Right? He set them out. So there's a lot of similarities here. Jesus went into Egypt. He came out of Egypt and he established a new covenant, right? A new covenant with his blood and with his body. And then he uh, was the presence of God physically among the people. And he was the direct representation of the people, of God to the people, right? Um, Colossians 1.15, Jesus was the image of the invisible God, right? He's the full image of the invisible God. We know God because we see Jesus. We know that Jesus lived among the people and worshiped and ministered, and so God's presence was with the people, and he established a new covenant. So there's a lot of parallels. Uh, John Settlehammer from Southeastern would disagree with the typological prophecy thing. I think I want to go with him because I believe in the sovereign, beautiful God and the way that he works out history. I think literally, and it's interesting, in this Hosea text, this, the first two lines there are the singular pronoun. I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And everything else is plural pronouns. They, we, you. It's, it, it's all, then it starts talking about a larger body of Israel. I think literally God gave Hosea an image of the Messiah. And, and literally in this time encompassed the Messiah in Israel. And said, when Israel was my child, I saw the Messiah and I loved him. And I called him out of Egypt. And I want to tell you about how I called him out and how I'm going to save them from judgment. And how I'm going to bring them back into a people. I'm going to do it through this Messiah. I think he literally saw the Messiah and he prophesied about it. You know why I think that? Because Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, read Hosea and saw Messiah. He didn't say, oh, that's Israel. He didn't, he didn't create a type of, of Israel or a type of Messiah. He saw Messiah and he proclaimed it right here. Out of Egypt I have called my son so the prophecies could be fulfilled. Matthew 2, 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. In this vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Here's our second prophecy. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So, um, the Magi have a dream where an angel appears to them and says, don't go back to Herod, he's going to kill the kid, so go back a different way. Herod's like, oh, man, I had this master plan to kill out this threat to my throne, right? Herod, it was an evil dude. He was a really evil dude. He was so evil, uh, he killed his own children and his own wives because he was scared they were going to take over his throne, right? So he was such a brutal leader uh, and killed so many people that this, this, this history right here of killing children in Bethlehem is not even registered anywhere else in written history because it didn't even blink on the map of his cruelty, right? 
It didn't even create a blip on the map of his cruelty. He was so cruel that the people of Israel petitioned Caesar, please give us a different king. He's killing us. He didn't. I mean, Caesar was like, we'll get over it. You know? But Herod had this master plan. I'll find out who the Messiah is, and I'll kill him. My throne will be secure. He was paranoid, schizophrenic. He was evil. He was wicked. He was full of himself. He loved power. He was the worst kind of leader you could possibly have. And so when he realized he was tricked, what was his answer? I'll kill all the kids that are two years old in my midst. I'll kill all the boys. I could care less. You know, I, nobody's taking my throne. And, and in, in Bethlehem, you've got to realize it's a small little town, probably estimated 1,000 people, the population, and then the vicinity. So we'll say 1,500. Not every family had a little boy that was two years old and under, right? I mean, so we're, we're talking 20, 30 kids. We, we think in our minds it's like thousands of kids are murdered. It's 20, 30 kids, so that's why it doesn't register on the blip of his cruelty in other written history. But you got to think, out of a population of 1,000 people, 1,000 families, 30 kids being murdered in one fell swoop that are like Caleb's age, right? This is the two years old and under, Caleb's age. The Jews really did it right. They were like, your first year of life was one, your second year of life was two. It's not, it's not we go the first year of life is zero, right? We, we do it like that. But the Jews really did it right. So people of Caleb's age, can barely walk, don't speak. You know, that the, the Lord was, I mean, the wise men were bowing at his feet, had swords thrust through their chest. You want to talk about pain and suffering and just misery happening in Bethlehem. That's why this prophecy is fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Refusing to be comforted. You're like, where's Ramah? Why, Rachel? How is this fulfilling the prophecy? Interestingly enough, Ramah used to be, when this is going on, this is what we call a double fulfillment prophecy. It happened before it was fulfilled, and it happens again and it's fulfilled. A double fulfillment prophecy. Um, there's several of these in the Old Testament. Uh, Ramah was a place between the northern and the southern kingdom. And when they came in and the Assyrians and the Babylonians invaded, they'd bring the men of Israel up to Ramah. It was a high place, an elevated place, and they'd sell their people into slavery and disseminate them across the land. They scattered them. So Rachel, in the first prophecy, represented Israel. They're crying. Oh, my sons are no more. They're being sent off, and surely they're going to die. Israel is being torn apart. Our people are, are dying. Surely there's no, there's no comforting for that. And so Rachel is mourning. She represents Israel in the first one. How does this fulfill today? Well, interestingly enough, Ramah, had, there was a place called Ramah that was commonly known just south of Jerusalem and north of Bethlehem, right between, right? And there was a place that was commonly known in Ramah because it was a high place. That's what Ramah literally means, high place. So culturally, they, they, they assumed this area was the new Ramah. They, they knew this. And um, right around that area was the tomb of Rachel. Rachel's tomb was right in the same area, in the same vicinity of Bethlehem. So Matthew is saying this is the double fulfillment. You want to hear great weeping and mourning? Look at the women in Bethlehem. They just lost their children because of this Messiah. Right? The Messiah came. And there was a judgment that came. Judgment is coming to the earth. And that's what the whole thing about Hosea is saying. Judgment is coming, but there will be a hope because of what I'm going to do. This I've called my son out of Egypt, right, Hosea. But Jeremiah is saying there's, um, <coughs> there is a, a hope for a restoration. I'm going to restore you. Messiah comes to restore us to God, and great weeping and mourning come because of his presence, right? That Herod, jealous over his throne, kills all these children. God wasn't surprised at this moment. God was in total control of the situation. He was still sovereign. And through his providence, he moved Joseph and Mary and the child to Egypt before all this happened. He was still in control. Herod didn't catch him off guard with his wickedness. 
He was still supreme. Still had, had it all taken care of. He had this. And he showed us he had this because he moved Joseph at just the right time. Get up in the middle of the night and go. Herod's about to kill all these children. Joseph ran. And he lived there until Herod had died. After Herod died, this is 19 through 25. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Who would think it, right? Uh, and in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Oh, look, another dream. It's the fourth dream. Uh, he, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived there in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled and said to the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. All right, let's talk about dreams. This is the fourth one. It's the final one in this text. Um, God spoke through dreams. We see here four dreams. We see uh, Matthew, the first part of two. Uh, an angel appears in a dream to the Magi and tells them to go a different way. gives them a specific direction. We see the second one appears in a dream to Joseph and says, go to, um, go to Egypt and flee because the child's about to be killed. Then we see him again in Egypt in a dream. An angel appears, go back to Israel. Specific directions, message from an angel in a dream. And then the last one in a dream, he says, uh, yeah, Archelaus is there. You probably don't want to hang out in Bethlehem. Why don't you go to Nazareth? And, and once again, providence, sovereignty, moving Jesus where he had to go to fulfill the prophetic qualifications of Messiah. Pretty amazing. Um, does God talk to us in dreams? I think he can. Absolutely. I think he does. Um, I've, I've had a dream before, which I honestly believe was from the Lord, and it played out over time. I didn't get it at the time, but as it played out over time, it became realer and realer and realer, and it started to come true. And I was like, wow, this is crazy, and I wish I would have known it. Um, but I also, yesterday I was thinking, I had a dream about buying a speedboat. You know, like, is God saying something? I don't know, but we need to talk about this, right? Like, I had a dream about buying a boat and driving it up on land and checking out the propellers before I made the final offer. I was like, yeah, that's a good propeller. How are we going to get this back in the water? And then I woke up. But I mean, like, I don't think God was speaking to me in a dream right there, right? John MacArthur would say most of our dreams are the product of an unbridled mind, Right? It's, we have input from our brains, our brains, are, our synapses are firing, we have visions in our dreams, and we, we have things. They're not always God communicates in dreams. But I think he does, today, I think he does um, communicate to us in dreams, but those dreams, we're going to have to check. We, have, like, we can have visions that we think are from God, and then we can have visions that are from God, right? And I, this is why I would say we have those. Acts 2.17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young man will see visions, and your old man will dream dreams. Right? God didn't cut that off. Um, the, the true dispensationalist would say God does not speak in dreams. He only speaks in the word. Well, the text says in the last days. We're not in the last days yet, or we may be right now. I don't know. The last days, uh, <coughs> we will dream dreams. So I think it's possible. Right? I mean, I've experienced it. It's pretty crazy. The Lord literally showed me someone's sin, and I didn't get it. And, and then, then it was revealed. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, we have to check it though because dreams, because they're the product of an unbridled mind, if we try to interpret our dreams as being what God is telling us to do, then we might really go astray a lot, right? So this is what we have to do. Um, you got to notice that Joseph had all these dreams in a very specific time in the New Testament, right? But he had these dreams before what had happened. Before Jesus had died and the Holy Spirit had come. 
these dreams came before the Spirit had uh, descended, before the day of Pentecost. All right? Um, so we, we can't say that God speaks to us in a dream the same way Joseph got spoken to a dream because now we have a Spirit in us that Joseph didn't have. God directs us primarily through that Spirit. And, and ultimately, he communicates to us the primary way is through his word, right? He's revealed everything we know. Then he's given us a spirit and a gift to be able to interpret that text so that we know what our direction is and what God's will is. And we don't have to guess anymore. We don't have to wait for the dream and try to find an interpreter. The spirit of God teaches us and leads us. The spirit of God teaches us through the word. And the spirit of God confirms what God is calling us to do through something else. What is that? Each other. Each other the body of Christ. He's given us the body of Christ. We are big on intimacy with God through intimacy with others, right? We know God, we see God, we live and we experience God through intimacy in the body of Christ because each one of us are dwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, God uses the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. So if you're struggling, what should I do in this business adventure? What should I do with my family member? What should I do about this relationship? Seek the scripture, submit yourself to the Spirit and what the Spirit teaches you in the scripture. And if you're still confused, Ask the body of Christ, and the collective body of Christ in the Spirit should be able to give you some direction. It shouldn't be our dreams or our emotions, right? Like, I promise if we sat down and started really analyzing whether or not I should buy a boat, the Spirit of God in this group will say, no, well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> right? I, I will guarantee you, you will, if I told you my reasons, you would be like, no, that's not biblical. That's not from God. That is an unbridled mind. Right? But we now live in the context of the Spirit of God. Yes, we can have dreams, and yes, God can reveal things to us, but we need to test all those dreams against the Scripture. Because God is not contradicting himself in the scripture, right? He's not going to tell you, okay, um, why don't you fudge your tax return just a little bit more so you can get some and then give that to missions? No. He's not going to, I mean, yeah, the end result sounds great, but he's not going to tell you to sin to get there. If you have that dream, then that's demonic, right? That's causing you to sin. He's not going to tell you, go kill someone. There was a woman who killed her two children, beat them to death a couple weeks ago, and she said they were demonic and God told me to kill them. God handles demons. He doesn't tell us to kill our children, right? There's something wrong with that. There's, the message is off. Uh, he's not going to tell me to cheat on my taxes, to, to do a shady business deal, to um, lust after someone else. Like He's not going to lead me in that way. So if I'm having these dreams, I need to check those dreams against Scripture, against the Spirit, and with the body. Okay? So that's dreams. Um, let's, let's talk about this last prophecy. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, so we see that God is moving in providence and sovereignty. We see that God is fulfilling prophecy with Jesus, and there's this last prophecy. And the first two refer back, right, Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31. This one has no written reference. He shall be called a Nazarene. Nowhere in the Old Testament to say he shall be called a Nazarene. It's interesting, right? So do we discard it? Do we say, oh, Matthew was just trying to make stuff up? And a skeptic would say, oh, he just added that in there to try to make Jesus more of the Messiah, and he really wasn't, so ha, 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 we caught you. Well, no, not necessarily. It was, a common, it was common in the Jewish culture to know prophecies that weren't necessarily written down or recorded in our canon, right? So our canon are the 66 books of the Bible. We, we selected those specifically under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to give us direction everything we needed to know. It doesn't mean that we included everything, right? In Jude, uh, the writer of Jude references the prophecy of Enoch. It's not in our Bible, right? I mean, we don't, we don't have the prophecy of Enoch, but yet it was referenced in a teaching point to the people who was writing in, a, in the book of Jude. So... This is, this is not uncommon that we're not going to have every written prophecy. But he's saying the prophets, multiple prophets apparently said Jesus will be, a, the Messiah will be a Nazarene. Now, uh, Nazarene was not exactly the best title on the face of the planet, right? It's like, 
for some of us, it's like saying, oh, you're a dermot. Right? I mean, like, we love living in Durham. I love Durham. I think it's cool. People in Raleigh, when I tell them I live near Durham, they're like, ugh, I live in Durham. You wear a bulletproof vest every day? I'm like, no, I don't. It's not that bad. Calm down. You know? Um, it, it, was a, it was kind of a slang term to say you're a Nazarene. You know, do you remember in uh, John 45 through 46, uh, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And he says, we found the Messiah. We found him, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who the prophets and Abraham spoke of. We found him. And what was Nathaniel's response? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? Seriously? It's Nazareth. Nazarenes? No. God would not send a Messiah through Nazarene. Are you serious? And Philip's response was, come and see. Come and check it out. It's amazing. People despise Nazarenes. I don't know why. I don't know what the history of that city was. I just know they despised them. They didn't like them. It was a slang term. Um, but Jesus was also despised and rejected, right? I mean, and, and then one of the most beautiful prophecies that we see in the Old Testament where we see Jesus is described almost to a T, literally to a T, what he will be, who he will be like, and what he will do is Isaiah 53, right? Everybody flip to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read the first three, three verses. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him or no beauty that we should desire him. Remember the Magi? They, they fell at the feet of a baby not because of what they saw in the little town of Bethlehem, but because of what God had said in, in, in the stars of who this kid was. He was Messiah. They fell in his face. He had no majesty. He had no form, nothing impressive that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not, and we esteemed him not. You want, you want to start off your, your earthly world, your, your earthly ministry, with an automatic, hey, despise me, tattooed on your forehead, come from Nazareth. <laughs> you know, like, apparently that's how you do it. And so... Jesus was despised and rejected. He was not esteemed. He, was, he, he said, the people in my own hometown in Nazareth don't even respect me. The prophet has no, nobody loves him in his own town, right? I mean, he, he fit this to the T, despised and rejected. Nothing of majesty, nothing to esteem him, nothing to say, king, 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 oh, let me worship you because you're the king. No, you had to listen to him, and you had to see mercy and grace, and you had to see the cross. And you had to see that through the spirit of God. But Nazar, uh, Nazar, or Naz, Nazarene, um, Nazareth, is also kind of a play on words. Okay, Matthew is um, filling in something else here. Nezer is the Hebrew word for branch. Nezer is the Hebrew word for branch. So to call him a Nazarene, a branch. Uh, look at Isaiah again. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Isaiah earlier in 11, 1 and 2 says, For there shall... Come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, and shall bear fruit. A, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, and shall bear fruit. So Jesus was the branch. The branch of Jesse, right? He was the shoot. He was promised in Isaiah 11. He was promised in Isaiah 53. He fills prophecy in Hosea and Jeremiah. He's prophetically qualified to be Messiah. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I think that fits Jesus. Spirit of counsel and might. Pretty surprised, dude. Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
Jesus was the branch of David. He was the branch from Jesse, right? Jesse was David's father. David was the king. Joseph was a descendant of David. Jesus, the rightful genealogical heir to the throne, he was the branch of David. And he bore much fruit, right? He bore so much fruit that it saved the entire world. In his obedience, he sacrificed himself on a cross for the, for the forgiveness of sin. Then he conquered death. You don't talk about bearing fruit. You know, and fruit, we bear fruit for others, right? He bore fruit for us so that we can have life. Crazy cool. So, God is sovereign. We know this. He is supreme. He's in control. He's the supreme ruler. He works through providence to save Jesus. He works through providence in our lives to, to lead us where we need to go. Uh, Matthew revealed that Jesus meets so many qualifications to be Messiah. It's not funny, right? Genealogically, that's hundreds of years of history. 14, 14 to 14 generations. Hundreds of years of history to get to Jesus. Um, that he is divinely qualified. God says that he's his son. God spins the stars in the heavens in creation to proclaim his glory. Remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. They pour out speech day and night. No one can't hear it because it's like so amazing. You know, like, uh, and Matthew revealed now that he's prophetically qualified to be Messiah. All over this text, we can see that God is saying to us, I got this. You want to look at history. You want to look at your life right now? Look what I did. Look what I, think about what I'm doing and think about the hope and the future that you have. I've got this. So no matter what you're suffering, no matter whether it's you're, you're facing a disease or a sickness, a struggle in your family, stuff at jobs, uh, problems with friends. I mean, really and honestly, when we, when we assess our suffering in this world, it's minimal compared to other people in the world, right? But it's still suffering. We can't negate it. It still hurts. It's still painful. It's still things that draw us away from the body of Christ and isolate us. It's still um, our sin patterns. We still struggle with them, just like somebody in Africa that might be starving. We, we have the same problem, same problem with our heart. But all over the world, you think about ISIS taking over the world, right? I mean, like, killing people just because they won't worship a false god. You think about our country, kids starving, elderly starving in our country. You know, like, if God is in control, how can this happen? God doesn't cause these things. The wickedness of men, the selfishness of men, the sin of man causes these things. The work of Satan in this world, demonic forces, oppression, that's what causes these things. God is sovereign. He's proved that he's sovereign. And no matter what we're suffering, no matter what we're going through, we can see that God's providence is moving us to a hope. It's moving us somewhere, right? He's got this. I want us to take three things away from this today. If, you can, if you're taking notes, this is where you want to write this down. Suffering doesn't negate God's sovereignty. It doesn't negate it. It, it kind of demands that it be real, because if it's not, we have no hope. Right? I mean, if God is not sovereign, our suffering is for nothing. We should just roll over and die. Right? If there is no hope that God can overcome our suffering, then we're in trouble. Right? Suffering doesn't negate God's sovereignty. It demands it be real. So when you hear someone say, if God is good, then why does blank happen? The question should not be if God is good. It's because God is good, he has provided a way out of that. Right? That suffering comes because of your sin and my sin, the oppression of Satan and, and, and the flesh, the suppression of demon, demonic forces that rule in this world. But God has provided a way out of this. Right? So the, it's not if God is good. God is good. God is sovereign, and he's provided a way out. Stuff happens. We're wicked. We cause the pain and the suffering of the world. Not God. Man's wickedness, on the other hand, cannot, and our sin cannot stop God's providence. 
Herod tried everything he could to kill the Messiah. And God was like, I don't think so, homie. <laughs> I don't, you ain't got nothing on me. Watch this. Joseph, get up, go. Thank you. Do your thing. Do your wickedness. Prove who I am. Prove that I'm sovereign. Prove that I'm, I, I'm working in history. Go ahead. Do your wickedness. I will judge you, Herod. I will judge you, and it's coming. Don't think you're going to get away with it. Our wickedness, our sin, doesn't stop how God is moving his will in this world. We can't. So if someone is afflicting you, if someone's sin is oppressing you, if you are under the a judgment of somebody, whatever, just know God is fully aware of it, and God is working it out literally for your good. That is such a, just a flat thing to say to people, isn't it? It's just like, for God works for the good, all those who are called according to his purpose. Well, you know what? It's true. It really is true. It has purpose and meaning behind it. We can say Romans 8.28 with some confidence that God does work all things for the good of those who call, are called according to his purpose, that he loves and calls according to his purpose. We know that he does. We've seen it in history. We see it today. We can see it in our lives, and we can know that the future is coming, that he has set up. The kingdom of God is set up, and he's calling us home. That's our hope. That's our future. He is working all things for our good. Whether we think it's our good or not, it is for our good, and he is moving. He is providential. He is sovereign. We can trust him. He's got this. And the last thing is uh, God's sovereign providence leads us to the king. Right? God's sovereign providence leads us to the king. He always leads you to the king. Right? I mean, from the beginning of time, in Genesis 3, there shall be a seed, and I will put enmity between the woman and your seed, and he will crush your head and he will bruise his heel. From that point on, providence moving through history to lead us to who? Jesus Messiah. Today, he orchestrates our life to put us in position so we can tell people about who? Jesus Messiah. We are looking forward to a kingdom where the king sits on the throne. And what's the king's name? Jesus, Messiah. His providence is always leading us to himself. It's not to something better, not to riches and glory and fame. It's leading us to him. So if you're suffering, if you're in a, in a sin pattern, if you're being oppressed by Satan or demons, whatever the situation, go to the king because that's where he wants to lead you. Run as fast as you can. Pick a beeline for the cross. Go put your face on the ground and worship him. That's where he's leading you. He always leads us to the king. He led the wise men to the stars in providence to the king. He led Joseph out of, of, of harm's way and with his family and then back into Egypt and then down to Nazareth to fulfill prophecy so that the king could take his place on the cross, conquer his place in the grave, and take his place on the throne. He saved the king. And we're looking to a future and a hope where we're going to worship that king. So wherever you're at, whatever you're suffering, whatever your pain, whatever your trials, make a beeline for the king. That's what we have to do. We see it in the text. God is sovereign. He's providentially working. We see that he's got this. Do we believe it? Do you believe it? Can you apply it to your life? That's the question for today. Can you apply it? God's got this. The response would be breathe. Trust him. Take a deep breath. Rest. In his providential care, in his sovereign rule, rest, breathe. He's got this. Can we pray? We'll do one more song, and then we'll have some discussion. Sound good? Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that in uh, Matthew 2, 13 through 25, you show us how in control of the world you are. And you show us that in the context of evil and wickedness and sin. And you, you give us a reason again and again and again throughout your scripture to just trust you, to breathe, take a deep breath and just rest. 
Because you are in control. And no matter what the, the evil, wicked will of man in this world that, that causes our suffering, whether it's just the fall of just because of the fall of man and sin in this world that causes sickness and disease and, and death and hurricanes and all the things that where nature is just broken and groaning looking for you, Father, you promise us a hope and a future where you will restore all things. You will restore all you will restore creation. You will restore our souls. You will cleanse our hearts and give us a new heart. You are sanctifying us and glorifying us, Father, and one day we will sit with the King so we can hope. We can breathe. Thank you for having us. Thank you for getting us. Help us to say that daily in our suffering. You got this. You got this. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our church or hear other messages, please visit us at www.restorationchurch.us. 